Welcome to Matt's Crummy Halloween Comics Collection, and welcome to the 2020 edition of our War of the Worlds Week. This is the Matt's Crummy Halloween Comics episode for our 2020 War of the Worlds Week. If you're not familiar with one or both of those things, Matt's Crummy Halloween Comics Collection is the show where I take a look at one of the comics from my not-so-ordinary collection and take a good hard look at each bit of that issue in this episode. It's also part of our War of the Worlds week for 2020, our annual dedicated time slot during October to the subject of the War of the Worlds, ending with the restreaming of Orson Welles and a Mercury Theater on the air's infamous broadcast of their adaptation of the War of the Worlds radio drama. For this episode, I picked a new take of the War of the Worlds story with Grim Tales of Terror, Volume 3, Issue 11, The War of the Worlds. Grim Tales of Terror is a series of horror-themed stories and reimaginations from Zenoscope Entertainment, an independent comic publisher founded by Joe Brucia and Ralph Tedesco in 2005. Zenoscope has a ton of titles that have come out over the past 15 years now, including Grim Tales of Terror, which alone has four volumes of 13 issues each with just a seemingly unlimited potential for more to come. The Grim Tales of Terror line is an anthology series, each having its own issue and its own story. Stories have featured both original and very imaginative retellings of classic horror tales. They have original stories like Dead Girl Walking, Don't Turn on the Light, The App, Haunted Hanging, Clowns, Chain Letter, and some of those creative reimaginings such as Bloody Mary, Jekyll and Hyde, The Monkey's Paw, The Invisible Man, The Bermuda Triangle, and of course, The War of the Worlds. This issue of Grim Tales of Terror hit the shelves on December 20th of 2017. I picked it up maybe a year or two later. Definitely was not the year it was published. What drew me to this? naturally, was the War of the Worlds in the title. And quickly paging through it, it was pretty evident that this was a take on a story that I had not read or been at all familiar with. So I had to check it out. So let's talk about the cover that first drew me to even picking this up. The Grim Tales of Terror covers, by and large, like the, I guess you would say the main, the template of them, harken back to the old Tales from the Crypt comics, the Marvel horror comics, the vintage horror comics that are kind of aesthetically making a comeback right now as we speak. But this was, well, three years ago now, four, if you count the uh, publishing year of this year, and they were already taking on that kind of mantle of bringing the, that look of a comic back into popular culture. So at the very top, almost, almost a full third of it, not quite less than a quarter, but almost a third is a giant red, plain except for just a sliver on the white side where the company named Zenoscope is, the red field has Grim Tales of Terror in white on top of it. And terror is, you can imagine, of course, it being a horror-themed thought. The Grim Tales of is kind of more of a calligraphy, medieval-type font, but terror is looks like it's made out of wooden stakes for either defense or attack. I'm not sure which one it's trying to hearken to. 
And then in the top right, right above where the slash for the R would come from, are the kind of the issue details. It has the Zenoscope logo, then number 11, volume 3, and cover A. Below that, that is where the imagery is already harkens to, uh, well, it's an alien attack, flat out. I'm not sure if it says War of the Worlds on its own, but you do get the title War of the Worlds about halfway down the cover, all the way to the left. So you, uh, if you didn't know that's what we were looking at, it also tells you. And the reason I'm saying maybe it doesn't say War of the Worlds flat out is because there's no like uh, tripod. The, the imagery that always conjures to my mind with War of the Worlds ever since the broadcast was the tripods, the black smoke, and then the red weed. That's not on here, but what is on here is clearly a Martian attack. I'm not saying they've missed the mark by any means whatsoever, because it is a flat-out little green men, literally, in spacesuits with disintegration guns, zipping back and forth in the city. You can actually see a victim in the, behind the second Martian that has been hit by a disintegration ray, and you get a green silhouette of his body and a dark green shadow of his bones his skeleton as he's being disintegrated there's the the furthest away alien that's on the ground is firing the one closest to us has just turned and saw us and he has his gun ready it's not pointed at us but you can certainly picture that's where it's going next behind them the city is in flames and up in the air is i didn't even count let's see one two three four five six seven eight that i can see Eight literal flying saucers, also half of them firing and others just coming. Oh, wow. There's more than that. There's actually, I just realized there's tiny ones in the back coming in. This is a full scale invasion. There's like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Another ten. So that's 18 to 20 just in this little sliver of what's happening in the world right now. So that's the idea. The world is, is being completely overrun by literal little green men with weaponry not only far more advanced than our own, but seemingly indefensible. I would imagine if these things can disintegrate people, they can also disintegrate any kind of shielding between the gun and the people. So that is the cover, not a far cry to imagine I would see this and also see the four, world, four worlds, four words, war of the worlds immediately pick this up. Now that I took all that time, to describe the cover in as much detail as I could express, here's the interesting thing. I'm going to tell you right now, that cover has absolutely nothing to do with what is going on in this issue. But that is also not unusual for Zenoscope, or at least for the Grim Tales. Not just even the Tales of Terror, but the other Grim Tale lines. Before there was a Grim Tales of Terror, Zenoscope had the Grim Fairy Tales line, which was an also an incredibly creative reimagining of classic fairy tale stories in a new world being built around those ideas. The covers of many of those issues featured pinup type Im imagery of fe the female characters that the stories were about. But that seems like it m was more of a marketing tactic because those titles featured extremely strong female leads and really no exploitation of their bodies or the characters in the story pages themselves. So while this cover is not that kind of style, I'm explaining that because that seems to be a a, a, a characteristic of a Grim Tales story, having a cover that is completely separate from the story within. 
So, the only way to actually get to that story within is to open this up and take a look. And on the very first page, we get the credits and the titles. And again, it is issue 11, War of the Worlds. Story by Joe Brusha, Ralph Tedesco, Dave Prancini, and Billy Hansen. Writer, Billy Hansen. Pencils, Joe Santez Diaz. Colors, Mark Lesko. Letters, Fabio Emilia. Editor, Jessica Rosanna. Production design, Christopher Cote. And the final credit, Grim Tales of Terror, created by Joe Brusha and Ralph Tedesco. In the very first panel of the story itself, we find out that we are in Dover Springs, Texas, 1980, which I have to think Dover Springs, the name is a take on Grover's Mill. Same amount of syllables. I think, no, that's not an alliteration. I think alliteration is when you have the same sounds in the first letters. It's very similar. Dover Springs, Grover's Mill. To me, the similarities certainly conjure up the idea that it was picked not at random. It was a, it is sort of a nod to the 1938 broadcast, I think. I could be wrong. There's a long-haul trucker team that's gassing up and yelling for the long, red-haired woman attendant to hurry up. She finishes up refueling before she sends them on their way and mentions that night hauls on Halloween are supposed to be bad luck. The truckers just brush off the superstition and tell her to have herself a good night, which she answers, oh, I will, better than yours anyway. They head down a rural back road listening to the local radio station KRAW and the radio personality Meredith Dane. Meredith's show is about to offer a block of music by the police, Guns N' Roses, Eurythmics, and Joan Jett, and it all kicks off with the Blondie song, Call Me. As the song starts, we actually see the lyrics in word bubbles coming out of the radio, and the truckers see something on the road and turn the truck hard and roll a little bit off the road to miss it. In a narrow miss, we get to see that what th was standing in the middle of the road is this tall, multi-fanged, mouth-tentacled, long-four-fingered grail alien that's standing right in the middle of the road where the truck had just swerved. Just a little down the road, the driver struggles to regain control of the truck, which he does, and he brings it to a full stop. They take a look in their rearview mirrors, and they see this alien-looking thing, and they decide that it must be a local playing a trick on them. The trucker on the passenger side of the cab pulls out a pistol and decides he is going to confront this jokester and teach him a lesson. The driver calls out to him saying, Larry, wait, but Larry continues to approach this creature. When he gets in arm's reach, this creature grabs Larry from the top of his head with that four long fingers completely wrapping around his head onto his throat and lifts him off the ground and starts running a jolt of blue lightning through his skull. From here, we cut to the radio station and to the radio show we were just listening to with the truckers in the cab. And Meredith is in the studio and now on the air, closing out the Blondie song, Call Me, and setting up for that 30-minute commercial-free block of music she just promised a few pages ago. Before she starts that, she gives out the number to call into the station and then lets the music play and gets up to get some coffee to get her through what is, we find out, just the beginning of her overnight shift. As she's in the break room waiting for the coffee to finish up, this large black spider crawls up on her hand. She takes a really close look at it, asking, and who are you? Before she squishes it between two of her fingers then spreads them apart to inspect the carnage that's stuck and stretching in a gooey ooze between her thumb and her index finger. 
Her show producer, a middle-aged bearded man with a gray ponytail, comes rushing in saying Meredith has to hear this caller he has on the line. He's talking about a monster in the street that just killed his buddy. Meredith reminds him that this is Halloween and it's probably a prank, but go ahead and put him on the line and she'll decide for herself. Meredith opens the line and it's a truck driver describing the events that we just saw in the following pages. And then she asks, why are you calling a radio station? Why not call the police? The truck driver says he tried, but the police, the fire department, 911, all those lines are down. He called the station hoping that she could get the word out to get some help over the broadcast. She tells her producer, who we now find out is named Mark on this exchange, that they can't put this guy in the air because he's a wacko. Mark asks what if he's right and suggests they try calling the police and find out. So she does, and he was right. The police line was down, just like the truck driver said. At this point, a second line to the studio rings. And this time, it's a woman frantic that there's something roaming their neighborhood that's taking people away. We cut to her side of the call, and we see her and a man in a bedroom, and the man's holding a golf club up like a weapon. The door bursts open and it's another one of those aliens, and he enters and grabs a man by the head, delivering that same jolt of blue lightning that he did to Larry in the beginning of the story. After this, Meredith agrees to put the truck driver on the air. Back in the studio, Meredith interrupts the broadcast. And again, I'm going to say has to be another nod or homage to the 1938 War of the Worlds. She interrupts saying that they have an emergency situation. She explains that all the phone lines to emergency services are cut off and that they have a caller on the air that's reporting something dangerous on the back roads. She patches in the truck driver. His name is Dale, and Dale describes the creature he encountered and how it killed Larry. As he tells the story, we see people around town hearing the story over the radio. We see a man driving those back roads, people at a Halloween party at a local bar, and kids finishing up their trick-or-treating gather outside a friend's house, all asking if the story could possibly be real. In the studio, Mark is knocking on the glass, holding up a sign that says MORE COLORS in all caps. We get a look at the phone and every single line is lit up. Meredith goes back to that second caller and now the woman's in tears saying they're changing us. One by one, they're turning us into monsters. Going back to her side of the call, we see her standing over the body of the man that was attacked in the bedroom. And then we get another angle of that same room in a different panel. And now we see that there's a bullet wound in his head and her standing there with a pistol. She holds a pistol to her head and says over the phone, they're not going to get all of us. And a five panel montage shows a loud bang over the radio through the town of everyone that we just saw listening to this broadcast ending with the sound coming from Meredith's headphones. Meredith continues a broadcast explaining that there are more callers with more information that might explain what's going on. We got Henry on Birch Lane confirming that he sees these things all over the neighborhood. Vicky reports that they've taken her children. Randall from the North End says that they took everyone. And Jenna on Riverside pleads for someone to help them find a safe place to go. We cut to the man that we saw driving just a few pages ago, and he's on the back roads entering Dover Spring. We go over to people running out of a local bar panicking, and one of the partygoers stops in front of the car screaming, there's one of them inside, help us. Scared, the man speeds off. As he does, the kids that were listening to the radio show after their trick-or-treating are now crossing the intersection on their bikes. The man sees them just a touch too late and tries to swerve, but ends up hitting three of them at full speed. 
He loses control of the car and hits a lamppost where he's thrown from the car and hits the pavement. Back at the radio station, Meredith says they're going to try to keep contacting the authorities and will continue to update everyone when they can. In the production office, there's a banging on the door and a voice announcing, Police, open up. Two policemen bust in, telling Mark to shut the broadcast down. Mark tries to explain what's going on, but the police say that the broadcast is causing chaos and panic. Yet another nod to the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast, but now more of a historic behind the scenes, something that didn't happen in the story, but happened inside the studio during the broadcast. One of the officers calms down the situation a bit, but sternly asks where the truck driver is, the first one to call. They need to speak to him specifically. Mark said he's still on line one. That officer picks up the phone and asks Dale the trucker where he is. Dale gives his location and begs to send someone. The officer assures him someone is on the way. At this point, we cut back over to Dale and see two aliens approaching along with a green, gray-skinned Larry with glowing blue eyes. We hear Dale scream before the officer turns and tells everyone in the studio the line went dead. Now the officers make their way to the broadcast booth where Meredith is still on the air, and they start pounding on the studio door, screaming for Meredith to stop the show. Meredith continues to explain everything we're seeing, letting the audience know that the police are here trying to stop this broadcast. Finally, the officers kick down the door and give her one more warning to shut it down. At that point, Meredith shuts off the broadcast signal. Then one of the officers asks, do you understand how much damage you did out there? Meredith answers, of course, with all the species on all the worlds, yours has been the simplest to kill. Let me show you. As her arms transform into the alien arms we've seen throughout the story, and she grabs both officers by their heads, shocks them with that jolt of blue lightning that we've seen throughout the story. As she shocks them, she begins to scream, I told you to panic and you tore yourselves apart. I said to flee and you scurried like ants. And now I tell you there's nothing to fear and you all start to forget. And just when you believe the danger isn't real, we will take your planet while you watch. The next morning, Meredith takes back to the airwaves to let everyone know that the events of the night before were part of a scripted broadcast written by Meredith herself. And she has a reminder that the next time they hear about their family and friends being turned into zombies, think about that previous night and relax and remember to laugh. As she signs off. We see a zombified Mark in the studio with her as she grabs the microphone and begins to transform back into her true alien form. All right, let's discuss some particulars here of this story. First, I really appreciate the radio broadcast angle. That is clearly paying homage to the, uh, I think actually two homages, maybe, and in, in, in maybe just me uh, interpreting the second one, but I, I'm uh, undeniably the first war of the world's 1938 broadcast. That's clearly the homage there. I, th the studio scenes remind me a lot of the cult classic movie Pontypool from 2008. That was a movie about a zombie outbreak that took uh, the, the movie took the entire film took place inside a radio studio and Mark, the engineer character reminded me of the main character in this movie, but didn't, really look like him other than maybe the age and the gray hair. I can't even remember if the, the main character from Pontypool had a ponytail or not. I, I you would think if, if he did, that's what's striking me as a, the similarity, but I, I can't remember now doing a real quick image search on Google. There's never a shot of the character from behind or with a ponytail draped over his shoulder. So I'm not sure that that is 
triggering a memory at all. I, there's something about him, though. Just something about him that reminds me of that character. So let's take a look at the artwork, because I really do like this. I've always liked all the artwork I've seen in Zetascope comics, not just this one. And one of the big things that I really have always noticed about any of their comics, no matter what the story is, that is that their character models are really, like not only consistent, but extremely consistent, which is, I would think, a kind of a tricky thing to do when you're writing uh, something like the Grim Tales of Terror, where they're anthology and you don't get the same characters over and over and you have to come up with a new design for your entire cast. That seems like it might be more of a difficult challenge than having a standard model to go through through a continuing storyline. So they've, I've never not known what character is in a panel of anything in this story. And that generally goes, if not completely goes, for all the Xenoscope lines of comics that I've read. But this one, for sure, there's never once I had to go back and, and see what this scene was about because I could follow all the characters exactly. And there was no like sudden panel of a goofy angle of a character that wasn't drawn on model. They all hit each character was consistent throughout. And I really appreciate that level of uh, our attention to detail when putting a, a one shot story together like this. This issue also has, I'm not sure if they all do this, but they have this kind of shading technique that I absolutely love in comic panels. And it's, I, I call it, I don't know what it's, it, I don't know any terms, but I call it a three color palette where for instance, right now I'm looking at a picture of Meredith at the microphone and the lights on her left side and there's a shadow on her right. And we go from her bright, the lit skin color. So you kind of got that, that, that pinkish beige color. Then you get the hint of the shadow, which is just slightly darker. And then you get the shadow and they do like the, it's, it's not necessarily a gradient. There's some gradient in there to smooth it, but it's, I can distinctly pick out three colors and they do that throughout this because this takes place at night. We see some stuff in the streets. We see some, some things in a dark bedroom. We see some things in a poorly lit bar, lots of shading and color and just in a, the style that I really, really like. I don't know again, what you call it. And I hope I'm describing it well enough to at least picture what I'm saying. There's a couple pages where there is no dialogue and you have to, Follow the story by what's happening. And again, absolutely no trouble whatsoever figuring out what happened. Especially, uh, I think the biggest one is where the man driving the car panics uh, after the, the people running out of the bar tried to stop him and zooms down the street and hits three kids on the bike. Not a single word is said in this. And it's, I'm looking at it now, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven panels and an eighth insert. Eight different pictures. And absolutely no trouble knowing what happened between him running away, hitting the kids, hitting the lamppost, and then eating pavement after that. Another just really good visual storytelling piece here. But <laughs> with all the praise, there's a couple of things I'm going to be a little critical about. And the first one is, and no matter how much I, I did enjoy reading this, which I did, and we'll talk more about that in my review. But the thing is, when all said and done, when you're done this story, and take a look back at everything that happened. It's not War of the Worlds. It's, and I don't even say there's an element missing. It's an alien takeover. War of the Worlds, when you break it down into its like base summary, Martians unexpectedly land, start attacking, start capturing and killing people, 
and then meet their demise. For a story to take on the name War of the Worlds, a lot of that is missing. And I'm not saying that you can't reimagine a story into something different, but this is a little too different. In fact, even going by name War of the Worlds, there is never a war. There is never any retaliation from the the earthlings basically well the, not to say basically the earthlings at all there is no war it's just an all-out attack and takeover there was one story element in here that i never quite got what was going on and that was the second police officer this is the one that it seemed like was building up that he was an alien in disguise this is the one that told the truck driver dale that someone was definitely coming and the next thing we saw were the aliens arriving with the zombified larry to kill him but then just moments later pages later whatever you want to call it meredith killed him so clearly he was either not an alien or not if he was an alien it's not someone on her side of things but we never got that that was a i don't know if that was a, a very small red herring to throw us off or well, just a me latching on to a story element that wasn't there and then going down the wrong path in my own imagination. That's very possible. But it was a very strange thing to make sure we had a good half page or even maybe more dedicated to have this cop kind of take control, get the truck driver in his place, and then have him blatantly attacked after he did. So I'm not quite sure what that was about. So now... I guess we're getting up to my rating, and my rating, if you're new to the show, goes from crummy to classic, and there's no benchmarks in between. It's just if it's not classic, I explain why, and if it's just over crummy, I explain why, and the other two, crummy or classic, I think are self-explanatory. All right, here's the thing on this one. (laughs) On its own, under any other name, it's really good. It is definitely original. It's fun. There's a good twist at the end. We kind of get the idea after it was all said and done that we actually saw an alien in the very first panel with that redheaded woman. Not sure, but that's it seems like that was some foreshadowing you didn't know until you knew what the story was. But it's called War of the Worlds. And under that name, for me, it disappoints a little bit. The alien invasion and the domination are the only elements that you can even remotely relate back to War of the Worlds in this story. So with that in mind, this is a tough one for me to rate. So I guess I'm going to have to split my rating the way I just did in that description. It's a rating of disappointing if you look at it from a War of the World story. But if you take it on as an original story, it's really good. So it is a weird one to rate. It's not crummy and it's not classic from either perspective. It is going to fall in the middle. And I think it all depends on how much you're expecting this to represent what your knowledge or I say Better yet, your experience with War of the Worlds is. I think everyone knows what mine is at this point after doing this War of the Worlds event week since 2016. So for me, it falls a little closer to to the disappointing side as far as that goes. But still a good story on its own, for sure. So I guess another way to say it, and I think about it, is that it is a story that I liked. It's just the title I don't like, if that makes any sense. So with that, which I'm not sure answered any questions in the end, that brings us to the end of this episode of Matt's Crummy Halloween Comics Collection and to the end of this 2020 Halloween celebration episode. But that is not the end of our 2020 Halloween celebration. Check back the rest of this month and check back to what we've already posted this month if you're just tuning in or just finding 
our work from newsaz.com. We've been putting out Halloween content all October, and this is not the first year we've done this. We've been doing this for many, many, many years, and you can find all of that work at newsaz.com. You can also find a special feed on nearly, if not every podcast provider called Newsaz Celebrates Halloween that has every Halloween episode we have done since we started podcasting over a decade ago. Along with that, you can check out our social media pages. We are Neozaz on Twitter and Instagram and Neozaz Podcast on Facebook. And of course, we just don't produce things at Halloween. We produce things throughout the entire year. And all that can also be found at Neozaz.com. I just said we've been doing it for over a decade now. And all that we have done is online for free for anyone to check out at any time. Again, that is at Neozaz.com. So lastly, I do have one more thing to say. I am Matt from Neozaz. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in that next episode. Hey!